So as you probably know, we're in the middle of a four-part series on the big picture of God's story in the world. And, and last week, Manuel used the image of a big picture of a puzzle, how this big, beautiful picture comes together. And today, as the assistant pastor, I have the happy topic of talking to you about sin, <laughs> how the picture broke apart, why the puzzle is so puzzling, so to speak. And we look at it and we see this picture and we see as it comes back together and we say, ah, it's just not quite right. This is sin. This is the fall. And we, we oftentimes use the term the fall, uh, but it can be a confusing term. See, when I think of fall, I often think of, oh, did you fall and get a boo-boo? Something that happens on accident. Or you think of Humpty Dumpty, right? Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Or Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horsemen, all the king's men couldn't, Humpty, couldn't put Humpty and Dumpty back together again. Like, how did he accidentally fall off of the wall? It's this idea, oftentimes when we think of fall, as an unfortunate accident that didn't happen on purpose. What we see here in Genesis 3, which is oftentimes called the fall, is not an unfortunate accident. It was something intentional. It was something foolish, absolutely devastating, and very sad for all of creation and all of the people. But I want us to know that as we look into the sorrow and look into the sadness of sin, that it is absolutely necessary because as we look into the sorrow, that is how we understand the good news of the gospel. So let us pray. Lord, your your word cuts to the very core of who we are. It probes into us and it finds sickness. But Lord, that is how we are healed. Oh Lord, do your heart surgery on us now that we may be healed and we may be renewed. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you look at the narrative of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And the very first thing that you notice and the very first question we have is, why on earth is there a talking snake in the middle of a garden? And if God made this snake, why is it so crafty? And why is it tempting the woman? These are questions that we oftentimes ask right when, when we first time you read this passage. It's a kind of an interesting, why? What's going on here? We may be tempted to think, did God do this? Now the only thing I want to say about this at this particular moment is that the scripture in Genesis 1 and 2 is absolutely and completely clear that God only created things good. Everything he made was good. And when he created it all, he said it was very good. Because he is good. And there's no hint of him being the author of evil in any sense. God cannot be blamed for the creation of evil. Rather, if we understand some other parts of the the Bible, in Ezekiel 28, for example, we see this idea that this is Satan who had already rebelled, who takes advantage, in a sense, of the serpent's natural prudence, makes it crafty. Ezekiel 28 tells of this prince in verse 13 of it who was perfect in beauty, 
this prince was in Eden, the Garden of Eden, the Garden of God. Verse 14, you were an anointed guardian cherub, an angelic being, blameless from the day you were created. Verse 17, but your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. And so God says to that angelic being, I cast you down to the ground. And verse 1 of that passage in Ezekiel makes it plain that the fall of Satan was about his rebellion. It says, because your heart grew proud and you have said, I am God and I sit in the throne of God in the middle of the sea. See, the point is that it's about rebellion. That Satan's fall was first and foremost about a rebellion. And so, in ours as well. Michael Williams, who wrote a book about the big picture of, of God's work in the world, in a book called Far As The Curse Is Found, he says this about sin. He says, if we miss the biblical emphasis upon the goodness of God's original creation we will fail to see the blasphemy of sin for what it truly is. That it is a rebellion against God and His good gifts. That it is a rebellion from the loving Word of God. That it is a rebellion that brings discord and fracture into God's creation. You see, it is a rebellion against the loving Word of God. It is a rebellion that brings discord and fracture into the creation. And so when you think about it, we see how sin is this foolish rebellion against God. It's the essence, in, in a sense, here what we see what's happening with Adam and Eve. is that Adam and Eve, they rebel against God by not listening to His voice. See, when Eve takes the fruit uh, that God, well, the one fruit that God told her, by her actions, she's saying, these other voices tell me what is good. These other voices tell me what is good and I'm going to listen to them instead of you, God. Listening to the other voices instead of God. See, rebellion is listening to our own voices or other voices above the voice of God to tell us what is good. The biblical name for that particular rebellion is called idolatry. See, idolatry is the first commandment. And what idolatry, in a way you could describe it, idolatry is just whatever we listen to the most to tell us what is good. Idolatry is whatever we listen to the most to tell us what is good. So think about, for example, perhaps money. God says, generosity is good. Giving to other people is good. This is the things God gave us money for. But then when money becomes our idol, the voice of money as our idol says, actually, hoarding would be much better. Holding on to it would be better. And even best would be to take from somebody else to steal it. This is the voice of money when it becomes an idol. Or think about if we have career ambition as an idol. God says, resting from your work and your studies is good. But when career ambition or success becomes our idols, the voice of career advancement as idol says, actually, studying all day, all the time, all the day is the only way to get to the top. No, don't, don't rest. 
It is better. You should not rest. Or think about pleasure, for example, as our idol. If God says, sexual faithfulness within the context of covenant marriage is good. And that pleasure is good. But then when the voice of pleasure becomes an idol, the voice of pleasure as our idol says, you know what? A different partner would be much more interesting and more satisfying. You see, in a sense, idolatry is just listening to the voice of something other than God to tell you what is good. But do we not see, even as Adam and Eve, they give into this, do we not see how it is foolish? It is foolish. What could be, think about it, what could be more foolish than saying to the creator of the universe who loves us and who created all things good, what would be more foolish than saying, I know better than you, God. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to listen to this other voice. What's more foolish than that? And yet, if you're a parent with toddlers, we see this all the time, this foolish rebellion. You may say to your toddler, if you have one, listen, listen to me. Listen, I am your father. I helped create you. Or if you're your mother, I brought you into this world. Right? You say, I brought you into this world. I love you. I know what is good for you. So, do not put that soap up in your nose. Because if you put that soap up in your nose, it will hurt. (laughs) And the child responds... So speaking with their actions, they say, I'm going to listen to my own voice. And my own voice tells me, sticking soap up my nose is good. We know that is foolish. Because that way just leads to tears and pain. But think about God, who is much better than us as parents, who knows what is good. And he says in a way, don't stick Soap up your nose because it will hurt. And we say, no, I want to do that. I think that's better. There's an absolute foolishness to to our idolatry. And yet, for some reason, it was compelling to Adam and Eve. This foolishness, this idolatry that goes against the voice of God that says, this is good, and they say, no, this is better. Why were they compelled by it? You think about for us as Christians who have a renewed nature, though we are not in that sense like Adam and Eve. We do have a renewed nature, though we have indwelling sin. Why on earth does such foolish sin still pull us? And I think for them and for us, we see in a way that sin comes through deception. And there's this deception that comes through this growing covetousness that is there. And also as Satan downplays the consequences of sin. This growing uh, covetousness. See, one of the tools that Satan oftentimes uses in motivating sin is to make us believe that we lack something. The desire, have, the desire to have something that you think you lack, that you think you need, is a very strong desire in us. 
And that's what coveting is. Coveting is just simply wanting what you do not have, wanting what God has not given you to have, and so you try to take it. I think this is why the tenth and the last commandment is you shall not covet. Because it's an umbrella co- it's an umbrella commandment that compasses the commandments as well and gets to the core of why sin motivates us and it compels us. Paul talks about this in Romans 7. In Romans 7. You see, first, you see something that you think is good. It's, oh, that would be good. And then you feel like you lack or that God is withholding from you something that is good. And so you take. Look at Genesis 3, 6. Is this not what happened to Adam and Eve in the garden? Where Satan makes them think that they lack something good. Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. See, they they saw something that was good and pleasing to their eyes. And then they thought, well, having it will fill up something that I'm lacking, which is wisdom, they, they see. And so what do they do? They take it. You see, the sense of lacking something desirable is a deep and strong motivator that can compel us into all kinds of foolish sin. The sense of lacking something desirable. One of my earliest memories that I have was when I was four or five, And I went to a friend's birthday party. And on my friend's birthday party, he got all kinds of toys. Lots and lots of presents. I'm pretty sure he got more presents than in toys that I had in my whole house. And so when I was over there, I thought, man, this is actual memory that I had. I got to have one of those Batman figurines that he got for his birthday. I need it. Because he has way more than me. And so I came up with this great idea in my head. I thought it would be really funny to start a new tradition at birthdays. (laughs) And this tradition was that instead of going to give a present to the birthday boy, it would be to take one of the birthday boy's presents. (laughs) That was really funny, I thought, and pretty clever. So, I took my friend's Batman figurine on his birthday because that seemed way better to me than giving him a birthday present. I fooled myself. And then, it was interesting, on the way home, we got home to the house and my mom found the Batman figurine stuffed in my pants. And when she saw it, man, the anger of my mother came down. It was foolish. But you see, coveting of something that you think that you lack, you can make sense of all kinds of deception and rationalize all kinds of sin. And Satan works hard with Adam and Eve to instill this covetousness in them. 
He does it, you see in verse 1, by making them doubt the goodness, the extent of the goodness of what God has given them. And then later in verse 6, he makes them think that they lack something special that God had not given her. Verse 1, he works to make her doubt the extent of the good things that God gave her. He says, uh, the serpent says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, see, that was actually a blatant lie. God had said, actually, you can eat of every tree of the garden except this one. See, he makes them doubt by lying as if to say, see how little you can actually have? There's not much good for you here. Look how restrictive God is. And then he makes them think that they are lacking something special. In verse 6, he says, in verse 6, For God knows that when you eat of this tree, your eyes shall be opened. As if to say, see what, you're, see what God is holding out upon you? Do you see what you will become if you only took this? Don't you see what you're missing? What you have is not that good, but look what you could have, what you're missing out on. is so much better. And here we see some of the deceit of sin. It's this idea that what you have is not good. And the good things that you lack are much better. But this is a lie. And the deception goes even further. It goes in this further sense where uh, this idea that there are not consequences... The serpent makes them think that there are not consequences for not listening to the voice of God. Or that maybe sin is just a small matter. You go back to Genesis 2.17 and look at what, what God had said about his command. He says in Genesis 2.17, The Lord says, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. See, in the Hebrew language and the grammar, there's a repetition of the word die. It's saying, you will die, die. It's a grammatical point making the emphasis and the certainty of what will happen, that you will die if you break God's commandment, is what he's saying. But then we see in Genesis 3, 3, the woman gets it wrong. And she says, But God said, You shall surely not eat of the tree of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. See, one thing is that potentially she adds to the command, don't touch. Which is probably a wise thing, not to touch the the forbidden fruit. That's probably good not to do. But she adds. But here's where the fatal thing that she misrepresents what God says. She says, lest you die. Lest is this idea, there's, there's a possibility, maybe even a probability that you will die. And we know that there's a big difference between maybe die and certainly die. And so it softens, kind of weakens the consequence. 
And then, at that moment, this is when the serpent strikes at this moment and says, right after she says, lest you probably will die, the serpent says, you will not die. He says the exact same thing but God, that God says in the exact opposite. You will not die, die. It will not happen. See, one of the great deceptions of sin is making it seem like it's not a big deal. That there will not be consequences. Or if there are, it's just a small thing. John Owen, who was a pastor from a long time ago, warns us about not being deceived by, by this sin as if it were a, to think as if it were a small thing. And he says in the book, The Mortification of Sin, and you can bring up the quote, um, Sin always aims at the uttermost. It is like the grave that is never satisfied. And herein lies no small share of the deceitfulness of sin, by which it succeeds to harden men and so ruin them. It is modest, as it were, in its first motions and suggestions. But having once got footing in the heart by them, it constantly makes good on its ground and presses on to some further sin of its kind. Which is why hate leads to murder in our hearts. It would lead to that in life, in action. Sin is always relentless in pushing to the extremes. It's always pushing. And so in our daily battle, we must combat it with the belt of truth and we must say, these covetous thoughts are disastrous. No matter what Satan and sin says, they are disastrous. And what God has given me is good and for my enjoyment. Those are the things we must tell ourselves every day. There's a singer-artist uh, named Sufjan Stevens who understood the, this deceptiveness and covetousness of sin. And he wrote this song called John Wayne Gacy Jr., which is a very disturbing song about the story of a serial killer who dressed up in a clown suit and took 27 boys and murdered them and buried them under the floorboards of his house. And he makes this song about this guy's life. But the whole song is coming up to the last line of this song. And it says this, In my best behavior, I am just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets that I have hid. You see, this is what the reality of covetousness of sin is that that guy was a serial killer, but in my best behavior, I covet just like that man did. But we hide it in our hearts. We hide these secrets under the floorboards of our hearts. The thing is, our covetousness behavior aims at the exact same thing. And sometimes people say, and Christians are really guilty of this, sometimes we say, can 
you believe what he did? Can you believe that she actually did that? As if to pronounce judgment upon them. And any Christian who is not fooled by their own hearts and understands the depth of their own indwelling sin says, Yes, I can. Because I could have done it too. Yes, I can. And so we see actually that sin is deceptive, but more than that, it becomes totally devastating. Their sin becomes totally devastating. You see, what we see next in this passage is how sin devastates our relationship with God. It devastates our relationship with each other. And it devastates creation and our relationship with creation. Remember what God had said in chapter 2, verse 17. He said, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. It's going to happen. And yet, in some sense, there's a mercy that God did not crush them right then and there. But there is a death that happens. In our community group last week, we talked about how there was a spiritual death that happens here. The spiritual death is seen particularly in Adam and Eve wanting to try, wanting to hide from God. This is a spiritual death. Instead of wanting to have a relationship with God and come to God, now they want to hide from God. Genesis 3, 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You see, our spiritual death after... Uh, of Adam and Eve and for us after the fall was our natural inclination to hide from God. This is a, oftentimes a, a, a theology that's called total depravity is what is happening, what we see here. Now total depravity is a, a, mis, a, a misunderstood term oftentimes. So we hear the term total depravity. We think of people who are just walking around every day, all the time, stealing candy from babies and doing bad things all the time. That is not what that theology teaches. In fact, we know that people do many good things for the world and good things for society, and this is a result of God's common grace in the world. Rather, what it is, is that since Adam, all of us are born radically averse to God's presence. We all want to hide from God as the children of Adam and Eve. We are born wanting to hide from Him and having nothing to do with Him as they did. Our minds don't want to follow God. Our hearts don't desire Him and our actions are contrary to His will because we don't want to be exposed. This is what Romans 1, 18 and following says. We may seek to get great benefits from God. Nice things from Him. But Romans 3, 11 says no one of themselves, no one seeks God. This is a spiritual death that occurs at this moment. And it plays out in the rest of the biblical history how it says later in Genesis 6 that every intention and every thought of man was only wicked all the time. Continually. 
every person, even the man named Noah. But it says, but Noah found favor in God's sight. Not because Noah was different, but because God came to him. See, this this doctrine, understanding of our sin, and this total depravity of our desire to hide from God, means that the grace of God comes to us when we are unable to come to Him. We are born unable. We don't want to come to God. But the good news is that God comes to us. And He speaks His word to us. Oh, the depths of our sin and our spiritual deadness, but the richness of His grace. Not only that, our relationship with each other is devastated. You see Genesis 3.16. He says to the woman, Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Some translations kind of try and clear up that idea of desire. And it could be this, like one translation says, And you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. Here's the point of that. Is that the partnership together to exercise dominion over the creation together in their distinct roles as, as man and woman. Their, their, their attempts to exercise dominion over the creation becomes an attempt at dominating one another. And the stronger uses power to take advantage of the weaker. And this is why there's no wonder why we hear all these things of Harvey Weinstein and those other situations that keep coming out. Rebellion against God creates rebellion against one another. Dominion of the world is replaced by trying to dominate one another. And then we see how the whole creation itself rebels against our dominion of it. And his rebellion. He says in verse 16 how the woman would bring pain in childbirth. And this is why when Matheson was in labor with her son, she kept on yelling, Curse you, Adam! <laughs> she didn't do that, actually. <laughs> but I could see it in her eyes. <laughs> the whole creation, our purposes. The man, work comes by sweat and pain and brings forth, in all of our big labors, it brings forth not just fruit, but thorns and thistles. Here's what I think is going on. is We're seeing that all of our most basic purposes of having families, of going to work, and other ministries that God has given to us to extend His kingdom in the world, they are met with blood and sweat and tears and struggle. And we'd just rather play video games and stay home because it's hard. But I'm not allowed to play video games for that reason. But our very purposes for this world come with trouble, with blood, sweat, and tears. And the creation itself groans. And so we see how sin has been totally devastating. It was not just a small private thing that Adam and Eve did. But it affected their relationship with God. 
It affected their relationship with each other and it affected even their relationship to the creation all around. So what should have happened? What should have happened in Genesis 3? One person in our community group said, well, Eve should have right away said, you're a talking snake. Stop talking. (laughs) But she didn't. And then Adam should have come in and said, God actually said, but he didn't. And then as Satan persisted in his lies, Adam should have crushed Satan under his foot right then and there, but he did not. That's what should have happened. And yet look at what God has done. In Genesis 3.15, he says to the serpent... He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head. He shall bruise. He shall crush your head and you shall strike or bruise his heel. See, the whole rest of the entire Old Testament is pointing out to this struggle, pointing to the offspring of the woman who is Jesus himself, who is told to be the better Adam himself. And so Jesus, when he was in the wilderness, he was not deceived by sin. He was not deceived by Satan and answered quickly with the word of God. He did not covet idols of power or instant gratification. He did not rebel against God. But when he was in the garden of Gethsemane, he said, Not my will, Lord, but yours be done. Yet in that very garden of Gethsemane, evil struck through the deception of Judas. And he was crushed on the cross. Jesus was crushed on the cross for the consequences of sin that he did not commit. And he was crushed. But then, on three days later, he rose from the grave. And in raising from the grave, he crushed sin. He crushed death. And he crushed Satan. And he ascended to God at the right hand of God the Father. And he sends us his Holy Spirit who speaks life into our hearts. Into our dead hearts. And finally, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus... The scriptures tell us the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Let us pray.